Well, good morning, everybody. So, I have five Bibles. I have a NIV, a study application Bible, um, a NLT, and my youth Bible. I even found my kids' Bible, which I was given when I was three years old from my aunt. For many people today, they think a Bible, that's so boring. It's full of contradictions. It's just a rule book of no relevance to my life in the 21st century. So why on earth would I keep reading them and keep buying them? In the 18th century, the French philosopher Voltaire predicted that the Bible would become a museum piece within 100 years of his lifetime and be replaced by more advanced philosophies. He was wrong. Today, the Bible is the most popular book. Every year, over 100 million Bibles are distributed. It's the most successful literary creation of all time. It's the best-selling book of the year every year, selling more copies than books like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and The Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, it is actually excluded from the bestseller list because every week the top book would be the Bible. That's why they don't put it in. It would be so boring. What's the bestseller book this week? It's the Bible. It's the most popular book in the world. It's also the most powerful book in the world. It can change individuals and change societies. And I know this for a fact because it is continually changing my life. It's the most precious book in the world. The Queen of England at her coronation was handed a copy of the Bible with these words. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing which this world affords. The psalmist describes the words of God as being more precious than gold. It's so precious that some have even died while sharing it with others people like Bonhoeffer in World War II and Joan of Arc during the Hundred Years' War. It was in um, March 2009, one day early in the morning, Marzi received a phone call from a stranger. He had some question about the car document and asked her to go to the police station. And we didn't know why and what, what was going to happen. Um, but we just prayed together and she left, she went to the police station and I was waiting for Marzia to return from the security police. Suddenly I heard the sound of her with a few others behind the door. Well, I saw her standing there with um, three guards and I was so shocked and they ransacked everywhere and they took both of us with all our belongings like Bibles, Jesus movies into the security police. We had long hours of interrogation. I, I believe it was in the first day that he threatened us to physical torture. In that dark cell in the basement, we just hugged each other. We said goodbye because we thought it was our last day on earth and um, we were so scared. I remember the only thing that we could do um, in that dark cell in those moments was just praying for each other. Uh, we met each other for the first time. It was 2005. And after finishing our theology courses, uh, we both felt that we had the same passion about our country to return to our country and to share this message with our people. That's why even though we knew that how much is dangerous, we decided to go. And we uh, called our pastor, he was in uh, London, and we asked him to send uh, thousands of uh, Bibles. And uh, it wasn't easy for them. And we received uh, those New Testaments and we started our first mission and usually at night we carried about 140 New Testaments in our uh, backpack and put them in the uh, mailboxes. I remember sometimes it was uh, during the winter, we had to walk 
for long hours, for about eight, nine hours. And after almost three years, uh, we could distribute uh, 20,000 uh, nutrients. There are some stories, amazing stories, that how God protected us and we could see his miracles. We were distributing Bibles, we were talking to people, and we were having these two house churches in our own apartment. And we knew that it was risky. We spent almost nine months in prison and 14 days we were separated. We were um, staying in solitary confinement. And I can say uh, during those nine months, we had almost about 10 trials, 10 courts. And in each court, the judges our, and our interrogators would threaten us to execution by hanging. And they, they wanted to put pressure on us to deny our faith in Jesus. We didn't have Bible with us but uh, we learned how to live with the verses uh, of Bible. And every day we were praying and uh, asking God to give us uh, this power to live uh, those verses and to show him through those, uh, uh, through our behaviors to prisoners. It was um, almost uh, at the nine months that uh, uh, we heard that uh, we have we had many supports from different uh, parts of the world, and because of all these uh, supports, the the government had to release us, unlike their desires. And you know, Marzi mentioned about those Bibles that we were distributing. At that time, we were just praying for those Bibles. We didn't we didn't know who would get those Bibles, and. I remember uh, it was two years ago, we were in Australia and we were invited to a church. After our speech, um, a couple came up uh, on the stage and then they were, uh, both of them, they were crying and they started to share their stories. They said that um, the wife found one of those Bibles that we put in, the, in their mailboxes and they found the Bible and the whole family came to Christ just by reading that um, New Testament that we put in their mailboxes. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all the Bible scripture is inspired by God. In other words, the Bible claims to be the word of God. It also seems to be the word of God. When you read it, it's kind of got a ring of truth. And then it proves to be the word of God. If you put it into practice, you find this really is God. God has spoken. Pope Francis says this about the Bible. We do not blindly seek God or wait for him to speak to us first, for God has already spoken and there is nothing further that we need to know which has not been revealed to us. Let us receive the sublime treasure of the revealed word. All scripture is God-breathed. That's the little tr literal translation of the word inspired by God. Of course, there were human authors. Over a period of 1,600 years, there were at least 40 authors. There were kings, poor people, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, historians, and doctors. They wrote different types of literature, such as history, poetry, prophecy, and letters. So this book is 100% human authors, but it also claims to be 100% inspired by God. I think this is a really good example. St. Paul's Cathedral was built by Sir Christopher Wren, the greatest English architect of his time. He started at the age of 43 in 1675, and for 36 years, the cathedral was built under one architect. It was completed in 1711, when Christopher Wren was 79 years of age. So Christopher Wren built St. Paul's Cathedral, but he didn't actually lay a single stone. There were stonemasons, carpenters, builders, many people involved over a long period of time. But Sir Christopher Wren was the inspiration behind it all. And it's the same with the Bible. There are many different writers, but one architect, one inspiration behind it all, God himself.
That doesn't mean to say that there are no difficulties when you read the Bible. If you've ever tried reading it, in particular the Old Testament, you'd have come across things and say, wow, that is awful. There are moral difficulties, there are historical difficulties, and there are apparent contradictions. There are all kinds of stuff and you say, how can this be inspired by God? It's a bit like suffering and the love of God. To be a Christian, you have to believe that God loves us. That's the heart of what Christianity is all about, the love of God. But then you look at the world, like today, and you see there's a massive amount of suffering. How can you hold together the love of God and all the suffering in the world? How can you hold together the inspiration of scriptures and the stuff that we read? Sometimes it's easier to understand when you know the type of literature that you're reading and the context it was written in. For example, a lot of the Psalms can be quite confronting and violent, but when you know that they are poetry and the crying out of someone's heart, you can actually empathise with the sorrows, frustrations and anger that the writers feel. For my birthday, Cam bought me a crossword crossword puzzle book. Out of the 15 or so that I've started, I've only finished eight. Some of the clues can be really hard, but I don't stop. I just move on to the next clue, and sometimes that's a bit easier. And then I start to fill in a number of the clues, and that gives me the letters that I need to help me understand the more difficult ones. I often find that if I have a break, I remember the meaning of a word as my brain's been mulling them over while I've been doing other things. And I've found that it's like that with the Bible. I've struggled with many things over the years, but as I've continued to study and read it, I've begun to understand more and more. It's not that there are still, aren't still difficulties. I haven't finished all the crossword puzzles yet. Um, there's still things in the Bible that I'm struggling with. But I would encourage you to hold on to the fact and believe that it is inspired by God and to continue to wrestle with those difficulties. Sometimes people say, if there's a God, why doesn't he show himself to us? Why doesn't he reveal himself? And the answer is, he has. God has revealed himself, first of all, in creation. The fact that we're here. The fact that there's something rather than nothing. The fact that this universe is so amazing and finely tuned. The fact that there is a hunger in every human heart that searches after God. Have a look at the back of your hand. It's so intricate and detailed. God created you. Science is the exploration of how God revealed himself in creation. That's why science is so amazing and so exciting. Um... The, uh, theology is the exploration of how God has revealed himself in Jesus, in the Bible. So there should be no conflict between science and faith. Ultimately, though, God has revealed himself in a person. He's revealed himself in Jesus. That's the ultimate revelation of God. But how do we know about Jesus? We only know about Jesus because of this book. The New Testament, of course, is all about Jesus. And the Old Testament, when you look at it through the lens of Jesus, is also about Jesus. There's a widespread impression in the public that science and God don't mix. And that's curious, because if you think of the rise of science in the 16th and 17th centuries, all its pioneers believed in God. In fact, they were Christian in some sense or other. You talk about Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and so on. Kepler famously said, we're thinking God's thoughts after him. So far from their belief in God hindering their science, it was the very motive that drove it. Because they believed in a creator, a rational spirit behind the universe, they thought that science was worth doing, and so they did it. 
So I'm not remotely embarrassed at saying I'm both a scientist and a Christian because arguably Christianity gave me my subject. We study God's revelation both in the natural world and in scripture with the minds that God has given us. And I believe there's no conflict ultimately between those two sides properly understood. So we need both. Science answers the how and when questions. The Bible answers the who and why questions. In 2 Timothy, after the inspired by God bit, Paul goes on to say, it is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. In other words, it's our authority for what we believe and for how we live. It's full of lots of practical wisdom, advice and guidelines for how we live our lives. It gives us boundaries. Sometimes people say, oh, it's a rule book. I don't really want a rule book. That will take away my freedom. Surely if I follow this, I'll lose my freedom. But actually, we all need boundaries. Can you imagine what it would be like if sport didn't have boundaries? Well, in a tricky green it is, Bill. Knoodles really got to get back on track here after bogeying the 14th. It looks like he's ready to make a shot. Oh, smart move. Another smart move by Knoodle. He's really rounded out his short game. Well, these two athletes are so evenly matched here. Jeffries jumps in right away, establishing control. Whoa! Hey, I thought we might see something like this. This team is known for these shrewd kind of tactics. Actually, true freedom comes when we know that God is in control and there are boundaries. If children grow up without boundaries, they're insecure and they're unhappy. If I were to let my daughter Alex play with whatever she likes, it would be chaos and she'd most likely injure herself. And yes, she is eating a cable. <laughs> so I put boundaries in place and baby-proof the house to keep her safe. It's the same with us. The boundaries are given out of love. God didn't say, you shall not murder because he wanted to ruin our fun. He didn't say, don't commit adultery because he's a spoil sport. He doesn't want people to get hurt. One man said, I don't read the Bible because it interferes with my work. He was asked, well, what's your work? He said, I'm a pickpocket. So this is God's love for us. He's given us this book. It's inspired by God. It's authoritative. It's the word of God. God has spoken. Through the Bible, God still speaks. The Bible is like a love letter from God. When you get a, love, a letter from someone you love, you treasure that letter, not necessarily because of the letter, because the letter itself is nothing in a way. It's because of the person who wrote it. And it's the same with the Bible. This book in itself is nothing. It's important because of the author and because the author wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to speak to you. That's why it's precious. Jesus said this, you search the scriptures because they think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. The whole point of this book is so that you and I can be friends of Jesus in a relationship with him. That's the purpose. The book itself is only a means to an end. Suppose I was to get a Lego set and it arrived and there was a manual inside. And I got out the manual and went, wow, what a great book this is. And I started studying it, underlining it in pens, the, bit that, the bits that really interested me, the colors, the nice piece usage, the complexity. And I thought, wow, this is such a great book. 
you know, we should learn this by heart. So I learned some sections by heart. Maybe we could set some music to it. Maybe Hillsong could write some music for it and we could sing some of this stuff. And, you know, maybe other people love this manual as much as I do. Maybe there's a Lego club I could join and talk to other people about my love for this manual. And you'd say, well, that's not what it's all about. The point of the manual is to build the Lego. The point of this book is to have a relationship with Jesus. I had a friend named Earl Smith. Everyone in his family was wealthy. Earl was so rich, he didn't need to work. And instead, he started taking drugs. He took such hard drugs that he ended up in hospital at the age of 30. Someone came to visit him and gave him a gift, a copy of the New Testament. Earl was thrilled because he realized that the pages of his new Bible were perfect for rolling joints. And he rolled his way through Matthew, Mark, Luke. And when he got to John's Gospel, he finally started reading. After reading John's Gospel, Earl came to faith in Jesus Christ. And his life was never the same again. It affected everything in him and everyone around him, including his psychologist, a beautiful doctor named Tommy. She couldn't understand it. I don't understand it, she said to Earl. I have everything, a great job, money, family, friends, and yet inside I feel totally empty. Meanwhile, your life is a complete mess, and you still have this extraordinary peace about you. So Earl told her all that he'd read in the Bible. He explained what it felt like to be loved by Jesus Christ. Earl led Tommy to know Jesus. And then he married her. Reading the Bible generates life. It produces change. It heals hurts. It builds character. It transforms circumstances. It imparts joy. It overcomes adversity. It defeats temptation. It infuses hope. It releases power. It cleanses the mind. So how do we hear God speak to us through the Bible? I find that if you have a plan, that can help. Set aside some time to read the Bible. Time is our most valuable possession, and we might have lots of it if we're all in quarantine. We can get more money, but we can't get more time. And then find a place. Jesus went to a solitary place to pray and spend time with God. And then find a pattern for reading the Bible. There are many, many different ways that you can do this. Currently, I'm challenging myself to read through the whole Bible from start to finish using an app called Read Scripture. It uses the Bible Project videos to help explain the books of the Bible as you make your way through them. I started from the beginning in March 2018, and I'm still only up to Isaiah, but I am reading other bits as well. Um, there's lots of other great apps and reading plans out there as well. Something that jumped out to me the other day was 1 Timothy 2.14. Don't let anyone look down on you because you were young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity which partly reassured me when Luke asked me to preach. If you expect God to speak to you through the Bible, he will. I think back, for example, to when my father died in 1981. My parents, when, when I became a Christian, they were, they were, neither of them were churchgoers and they were a bit worried about it. My mother eventually became a committed Christian, but my father really was always a bit um, cautious, I would say, about my faith. And never certainly gave any indication that 
he had a faith. And so when he died, I, of course, I missed him. I was, I was very shocked by his death. But, but for me, there was an added ingredient. I was concerned about whether he, he had a faith or not, whether he was a Christian. And about 10 days after he died, I was reading the Bible, and I sensed God speaking to me through a verse. And it was in Romans 10, 13, which says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I sensed God saying to me through that verse, your father did call on me, and he was saved. And that was so reassuring. But at that moment, Pippa, my wife, came into the room and she said, I've just been reading a verse which I think is for your father. It's from Acts 2.21. And it says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It was quite extraordinary because that verse only appears twice in the New Testament. She'd read it in one part, I read it in another. And then three days later, we went to this small group where we were studying the Bible and we happened to be studying Romans 10. Particularly, we were looking at verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So like I say, three times in three days, God seemed to have spoken to me through that same verse. But such was my lack of faith that the next morning as I was going to work, I was still worrying about that, that question. And as I got out of the underground, I looked up and there was, on the station, there was this huge great billboard. And on it, it said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. I remember saying to a, a friend, telling him the story about what had happened, and he said to me, do you think the Lord may be trying to speak to you? Let me ask you a question. Do you think the Lord may be trying to speak to you? And if so, will you let him? <laughs>